Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Delicious Yellow podcast with me, Matthew Mills, and my wife and business partner, Ella Mills. Hi, guys. Um, so today we are doing something very exciting. Um, it was actually on my birthday this year, on the 31st of May. There's some really interesting articles um, that came out that really caught Matt and I's attention. And the headlines were, Avoiding meat and dairy is the single biggest way to reduce your impact on Earth. And that this new research shows without meat and dairy consumption, global farmland use could be reduced by more than 75%, an area equivalent to the US, China, the European Union and Australia combined and still feed the world. And that was kind of too powerful not to um, get involved in, in our podcast. So we've driven up to Oxford today and um, we're sitting in Oxford and we are talking to Joseph Poor, who led this study on 40,000 farms. Um, so loads to talk about. So Joseph, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> so first of all, could you just give um, any listeners who aren't familiar with the study just a bit of background on it, um, how it came about, what went into the study and what the top line uh, findings were? Yeah, sure. So we assess the environmental impacts of 40 foods that represent about 90% of what we eat in terms of protein and calories. We did that using data from 40,000 farms in almost every country in the world. Um, and we assessed the full food supply chain from the deforestation and clearing of land for agriculture, um, right through to processing, packaging, transport and retail. And is that things like the water that's involved in it as well? Yes, we looked at five environmental okay. indicators. We looked at how much land is needed to make the food, the greenhouse gas emissions that are created, the water use, as you said, and two indicators representing the degradation of terrestrial land and water ecosystems okay. called acidification and eutrophication. And can you give us a bit more detail on, on the process and then what the, what the findings of the study were? What we were basically trying to do is understand not just the average impacts for different products, but the range, i.e. if you produce a product in a slightly different way, or what, what is the impact? So, for example... The lowest impact beef is using 36 times more land and creating six times more greenhouse gas emissions than peas and beans. So even and are peas and beans particularly bad peas and vegan beans, foods? Peas and beans, are, they're all relatively low. Peas and beans are some of the lowest. But you've okay. also got tofu, which even the highest impact tofu, yes. even if you want to get it from Brazil, for example. Because which... there's been a lot of re stuff in the papers about that recently, about, that, um, about soy being damaging for the environment yeah so it's first getting a few facts on the table most of the soy we buy in the shops in the uk to eat doesn't come from the amazon right um, where does it come from it comes from it can come from europe there's actually there's soy grown in france um and a lot of it comes from america okay so for eating um but from the amazon it's mainly for animal food uh, animal feed so even for plant-based proteins that maybe have to travel a very long way um, and have a lot of food miles associated with them um, and maybe even lots of packaging with them, they would still be, in what you're saying, is, is more damaging than, say, locally reared beef that you buy from your local butcher. That's right. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty much the message from our study. And so our tofu in our study includes tofu that's come from very far away. It also includes tofu that's got deforestation in the value chain. And they have lower that even even that has lower impacts than plant products and just to go back to what you're saying firstly most tofu comes from europe or the us that we eat and secondly most of the clearance for land most of the clearance land clearance for, to, for soy 
in the Amazon is for animal products. Something about 90% of it is for feed, particularly towards China for pig feed. So that's where our that that's that's where this defore, deforested soy is. So going. actually, all these kind of um, things that have come out in the paper, I think it was in the last week or so, talking about how actually negative, therefore, a vegan diet is because of this soy. Actually, this soy isn't for the vegan diet. This soy is actually for cattle. Yes. Yeah, so, so it's incredible. It kind of makes the message even more confusing. Yeah. So I mean. Globally, if we just ate soy directly, we'd need literally a fraction of the amount of soy that we produce. And the very large majority, 80% probably globally, it's just a, I don't have the exact number, goes to animal feed. 90, wow. 90% in the Amazon is, over 90% in the Amazon is for animal feed. And wow. particularly Chinese, Chinese pig industry. That's fascinating. And one of the other points that that you included, which I think is really interesting, because I think when people are thinking about changing the way they're living in order to have a positive impact on the environment, you know, we're quite kind of slow to think about food in other than food miles and things like that. And we're thinking, oh, we must get an electric car or something like that. But again, you said that actually changing your diet is far bigger than cutting down on your flights or buying an electric car. Yes, that's one of the really positive things I think that came out of this study. The fact is that there are these different diets that deliver transformative benefits for the environment. And we looked at a range of diets, but one of them was a vegan diet. And we found that it would require, a glo- we just modeled a global transition so you could see the numbers at scale. If 7.7 7 billion yeah, people became, became vegan. vegan. And uh, you, obviously that scales down, and we, I'll, I'll talk how that scales down to an individual level, but globally would require 3.1 billion hectares less land to produce our food. So that's the same as the entirety of Africa we'd no longer need to farm. Wow. Wow. Um, that could return to nature or reforest. So that's... The first thing is massive land. And that would also use much less water and things like that as well. It's not simply just their yeah. land area. Because yeah, so water is looking to be a real scarcity, isn't it, in the future? Yeah, exactly. So land is one of the issues, and it cuts land use significantly. Secondly, it cuts water use by about a quarter, global water use. Um, changing diets. And thirdly, it cuts our greenhouse gas emissions globally by about 23%. And half of that 23% is just the difference between animal products and vegetable products. The other half is the potential carbon that would be stored when trees grow on all that land that we've saved. Right. Um, thirdly, it cuts our water pollution by about, uh, by about 80% of water pollution that's caused by food by about 80%. Um, so that's nitrogen and phosphorus going into ecosystems. And it also cuts our acidification, which is a measure of pollution of land. Um, so you, you're having a big effect, not just on greenhouse gas emissions, on a, such a wide range of environmental indicators. And uh, you can also look at it from a, as, a, as a consumer. For a UK consumer, it's probably going to cut your greenhouse gas emissions by about something between two and four tonnes per year per person. So that's bigger than any, you, that's bigger than a lot of other options that people typically consider. Diet doesn't really feature. So some of the initiatives that are gaining a lot of traction at the, at the moment, things like Meat Free Monday, is that enough uh, by people just not eating meat on a Monday? Or is it something where there has to really be huge systemic change for actually the, for us to, to, to fix this enormous issue we're facing? 
Well, here's the numbers for you. Yeah. <laughs> by by 2050, we're going to be consuming 1.4 trillion liters of milk. That's the forecast, and 500. Wait, sorry, we're to say that again. 1.4 trillion liters. Yeah, a year of milk and 500 billion kilograms of meat, and that's a 60 percent increase on 27 2018. Wow. Um, so that's pretty close in the future 2050 yeah. and uh, and what would be the impact of this what to to people who are listening to this and sitting here in 2018 and you know the sun shining and everything looks okay in 2050 what could the world look like if if that is the case and we continue on this trend i mean there are a lot of things that go into a forecast and we didn't specifically make them in our paper but what is what is very clear to say is that we've already cleared about 40 percent of the world for farming uh, deforested or, or uh, cleared it in to turn into pastures or other forms of farmland. Um, and what we also know is that since 2000, an area of tropical forests, the most biodiverse forests in the world, the area the size of the UK, France, Germany, Spain, and Portugal has been cut down or burnt. Um, in the last 18 years? In the last 18 years. So this is... Not even two decades? No, so I'm, uh, and we've cleared it largely for livestock grazing and livestock feed. And we did that just because people prefer the taste of animal products to vegetable products. <laughs> and the last two years have been the highest this century on record for deforestation. And with those forecasts that I just mentioned, it's hard to see any scenario where we're not going to keep clearing land at that rate. It's hard to see any scenario where greenhouse gas emissions from the agricultural production stage don't increase and our other impacts on our really precious planet don't keep increasing but i think you know our study did highlight that there is this alternative yeah and, a vegan diet and it really does change the impacts that and can we reverse you... the impacts that we've had to this point from that or is it something where we would then just kind of level off that's a difficult question and we could we can probably reverse most of the impacts on greenhouse gas emissions if other sectors also cut so we can avert the worst of global warming if we make some drastic changes today and but we're diet. not it doesn't look like we're doing that does it well the uk is doing quite a good job our emissions have actually fallen in the uk and some other countries particularly in europe are actually doing a really good job uh at emissions probably not quite fast enough but but you say that the impact from the impact on planet earth it's going to a vegan diet is far bigger than cutting down on your flights or buying an electric car. Um, on what kind of scale are we talking about uh, across those? Well, just com so as an individual, on, on this is just on carbon. So remembering that uh, my point was about the fact that agriculture, you're not just cutting your greenhouse gas emissions, you're cutting a whole weight, range yeah. of other indicators. Yeah. But you can also look at it on greenhouse gas emissions. So for a UK consumer, diet change is going to cut your emissions by two to four tonnes per year of carbon dioxide equivalents. Uh, that's about the same as 13 flights from the UK, from London to Copenhagen, return flights. So it's quite a lot of flying yeah. that you would cut out. Obviously, if you do a flight to Australia, you're going to blow your carbon budget. <laughs> uh, so as that, but uh, in terms of an electric car, the estimate is you'd save about two tonnes of carbon on buying an electric car. So it's probably bigger than that. Um, and I think but it's also much more achievable than that, right? Like yeah. it's, it's much less expensive. You know, it's actually probably going to save people money rather than, you know, it's, 
And it's something that every, purchase. Exactly. It's something that everyone can do right now. And yeah. not everyone's taking flights to Australia. No, exactly. And, but people are, everyone in any country in the world can change their diet and achieve these, you know, huge benefits, not just greenhouse gas emissions, but this wide range of So typically it's, it's difficult to create policy changes for something that isn't visually in front of us today. You know, when you... When you look at the issues facing us today, long NHS waiting lists or Brexit and how that could affect our daily lives, um, what do you think policymakers need to do, particularly when it looks like the changes we need to make are so severe and will probably be very unpopular? <laughs> um, what what would you suggest we need to do as a collective human being to try and fix this? Or is it something where from what you're seeing and the trends we're on, is it something where we will just keep bumbling along and then at some point it will just break? Ah, that's, that's a really excellent question. And uh, he, uh, he or she who has the answer to that has, has uh, nailed it. But our solution was that we need labels on products. And this is what you were saying earlier, Ella, that um, we don't really know when we're in the shops what we're actually buying. And if we knew that, those impacts, that would be a great start to reminding consumers whether you're interested in the environment or not. Your daily, you're confronted with the facts every time you go to the shops. That, and when you hear the facts thing. like you're sharing with us now, it's quite hard to bury your head in the sand and ignore them. And people vote with their wallets ultimately, don't yeah. they? I mean, supermarkets, shops will supply what consumers want. And if something isn't selling, they take it off the shelf. We, we know that from, from our business. Um, and so we really, we really can. We are all the voters here. One, one other question I had, though, which I, I've definitely noticed kind of with friends and family, is that I think some people who are really interested in this matter, like they've, they've done some research into it and they've kind of appreciated that beef is not especially very good for the environment, for example. And lots of people have moved, therefore kind of maybe not having so much red meat and maybe moving towards kind of a pescatarian way, way of eating. But one of the things that's quite interesting in your study, which I know when I've shared it with friends and family, people have been really surprised about it. And I think we were both as well yeah. quite surprised about was this idea that actually fishing and fish is potentially not, again, the solution and that actually fish farming especially is is not so brilliant for the planet. Yeah, well, there were a lot of surprises that came out to this study and fish farming was one of them. So we didn't really know the true emissions of fish farming, but when you, what we, we put in a model and we, we, built, we built a model that looked at what happens to the excreta of fish and the unconsumed feeds. When you put feed in, the fish don't eat it. Yeah. And the excreta so goes... So this is looking at farmed fish. Yeah, farmed yeah. fish, So which is about 50% of global fish consumption. Okay. So it goes to the bottom of the ponds and it's this perfect environment for bacteria and microorganisms to convert this uh, carbon, which is what they're converting, into methane. Um, there's no oxygen down there, so normally right. you convert carbon into CO2 there because there's no oxygen, they convert it into methane, which is a really potent greenhouse Which is what's gas. involved in um, cattle, cattle, cattle farming, farming, which is what people are yeah. saying is such a bad thing. And so what is so deadly or what is so damaging about methane? Well, it traps heat in the atmosphere and it traps... Th- it, it has a, it, it's, more, it's more potent at doing that and more powerful at doing that than carbon dioxide. So that's what's raising part of what's raising global temperatures and warming the planet up. Yeah, so the biggest contributor to global temperature rise has been carbon dioxide and the biggest contributor has been the fossil fuel industry, which is today about 61% of our emissions. So it's 
very important. We shouldn't lose focus on the fossil fuel industry, but there are these other gases, methane, nitrous oxide, as well as hydrofluorocarbons, which is another one, but those methane and nitrous oxide both really come from agriculture. And as I was saying with fish farming, uh, methane can, uh, fish farms can actually create more methane than cows. Wow. Okay, that's... And when your uh, paper came out, I know we were really shocked by it and gripped by it, and it was a topic of hot conversation around our uh, dinner table. Um, what what have you found the reaction to be? Uh, have you been hearing from politicians or lobbyists or anyone else who have said, wow, we didn't know this, this is something we really need to get a grip of? Or has it been something that you've seen kind of come and go and some people have just kind of wanted to put their head in the sand on it? I've actually had a really positive reaction, I'd say, compared to... So I've had some companies contacting me who'd like, who'd like to understand more. Um, next week, I'm speaking to some... Uh, agricultural, ag- agrochemical and agricultural companies about this and I'm actually speaking to an EU working group about this who's actually got politicians and businesses that actually really want to do something and I think that's a really good sign and I don't, you know, I just think it's got to be a combination of more consumers are interested in and businesses and ultimately just I mean, got people We are all them. stakeholders in this, aren't we? Yeah, this isn't something so. that can be fixed by one person or one group. This yes, ultimately but at the same time, to... the thing that's interesting is that actually, again, and we did a really interesting episode a few weeks ago with someone um, who works in the food waste space, and it was a similar con- sort of conclusion, if you can call it conclusion, which is that actually as individuals... We, we can actually play such a massive part in this. And you think I'm just one person. What does what I eat for dinner matter tonight? But actually, you know, there's 27 million households in the UK. So if 27 million households had a plant-based dinner, that would make a really big difference if we kept doing that again. But and again. Can, can the UK, people in the UK, make that big of a difference? Or is the effects that have been felt from China and places like that... Um, too great. Are they just are they just too great for us to really be able to make any difference? Well, there are different ways. So there's obviously consumer change, and that really matters. It has impacts. It has immediate impacts on the environment. It also sets an example and shows what's possible to other people, um, and that's really important as well. So it can spread out. But if you can do it in a really intelligent way as well, um, that might be a way that labelling would work. We required that label products, food products were labelled in our country. Producers around the world who supply the food to this country would have to monitor their impacts and understand what they're doing to the environment when they produce their food. And that is basically creating information that doesn't exist and it would allow them to reduce their impacts. So if we require producers around the world to measure their impacts, mm. that's a, kind of a smart way yeah. of expanding the benefits you know, of our, our desire to do good, good for the planet. And so what happened to your own diet when you were doing this study? So I think the thing that I found particularly hard to give up was cheese. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I liked those prep cheese and tomato croissants. <laughs> they, were my, they were my staple food for a long time, but cheese it, it can have a higher impact than pork and poultry. And I just on doing this research and also actually learning about the dairy industry, which is really intensified, really intensified. Because our demand is intensified. Our demand's so high and we want to produce at the lowest possible cost. Um, And because, you know, half of our beef comes from 
dairy, from the dairy industry. Um, and it's typically the lo- lower grade beef that comes from it. So it's a it's a it's an industry that's trying to produce thousands of liters each year from a single cow to try and get maximum value for money and produce lots of beef from to get to get extra revenue. And all of this comes together to this highly intensified and effectively exploitative industry um, that is also having really high environmental impacts. And that was what... And I think that was a, a, a record for a commercially reared chicken of 21 days to get to supermarket grade, is that yeah, right? that's right. I think that was in, Aust- in New Zealand. But globally, across all countries, we're seeing a trend towards intensification of the additional food demand that we're going to require by 2050. About 80-90% of that will come from in, in highly intensive systems, and most pork and poultry around the world is intensively produced. So then you move away from just an environmental issue to, issue to a kind of ethical issue as well, because this is becoming kind of, you know, whether you thought it was ethical in the first place to kill an animal, it's becoming, if you're shortening someone's some an animal's life cycle by kind of two-thirds or so, it feels as though you're then kind of getting into the foie gras sort of space. It, yeah. No, but in all seriousness, yeah. I yeah. mean, it, it's it, that's that in itself is also quite frightening. Our kind of, but I think it's that we we don't want to see what's happening behind closed doors. And every now and again, a kind of documentary will come out, and I think the documentaries can be quite sensationalizing, like cowspiracy and things like that. But at the same time, they really shock people because I think we don't want to see necessarily what's happening because we don't want to as individuals make those little changes because as you said we're not doing it because people really like the taste of something even though we're creating something that's so incredibly unsustainable for our planet it feels like we're having the wrong conversations um if you want to look after the planet if you want to save the world um which i think we we've decided we do um you know and it feels like at the moment the way the media is talking about things and the way the conversations are going you know generally between between friends is that to save the planet what we need to do is kind of point our fingers at restaurants who are using plastic straws and people that are using plastic straws and plastic straws as far as i'm aware are kind of a fraction of ocean plastic and the pacific patch has 46 percent of its fishing nets and you know we're looking at the methane and things like that in fishing as well in, in farmed fishing and it just feels to me a little bit like we're having the wrong conversations like if you want to save the fish and you want to save the planet don't eat the fish rather than the plastic straw and i just can't help but feel like the conversation needs to move on and people need to become aware of this and I'd be really interested to understand from your perspective how do we share this with people how do we get people talking about this in a way that doesn't terrify them in a way that doesn't kind of turn people off from the conversation I think it almost it is terrifying I don't think that there's any way of looking at the stark reality of what we're looking at and it not be terrifying but I think the way through it is by creating positive messages of excitement to get through it so is there are there exciting innovations that are happening uh, or new technologies that are being developed that would allow us to fix this ginormous issue? Or is it something that really is, it's the, the only thing that's going to change it? It's just by human beings just changing their, for, for starts, their eating habits. Well, there are. Uh, so, I mean, one technology is obviously uh, managing and reducing farms' impacts through digital tools and <clears throat> monitoring on farm and stuff like that. And labelling, food labelling. <clears throat> to e- give consumers a kind of very conscious choice. Yes, there are a number of different technologies. One is uh, labelling food and monitoring farmers' impacts through digital technology. That's interesting. I think that's one of the most powerful options we have. Another 
technologies might be um, lab-grown meat or other other types of. Uh, so there are. So you're seeing some startups. Um, there's a couple in the states. I think are, are coming over here. One called Beyond Meat, which has the Beyond Burger. Mm. I think um, that's launched here. Yeah, which is basically. In yeah, it's a it's a burger that's basically made in a lab, and it's a plant-based burger. Um, and it even bleeds, so you get the you know if that's what you want, you get you get all of the textures or appearance of of eating a, a burger made of cow. Do you think that that is a solution? Is that is is food made in a lab the way forward? We don't know enough about the consumer demand for this kind of stuff, nor do we know about the environmental impacts. I think they would be great things to have in our bag of ammunition to understand these different approaches. I think it's. I think it's a good idea. I think if we can get consumers to change what they're consuming to a more environmentally friendly option, I think that's a good thing. Did you say before we started, though, that there were studies where there could actually be a net greater impact from food grown in labs as well? And there's there's studies that, um, that actually contradict each other, whether there are actually big benefits or not. Yeah, there are literally a handful, maybe four studies out there that look at the environmental impacts of lab-grown meat, and one comes up with a really low impact, one comes up with a, another one comes up with a really high impact, a bit higher than beef. So we don't really know where it's going at the moment. All you've got is information from companies. It's quite behind closed-door processes at the moment. Yeah, and we, we, need, we, need, we need to know more. Okay, so for people listening that are now thinking, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is so difficult. I did not know any of this. I do quite want to change my diet. So they're thinking about changing their diet. It doesn't matter if, you know, should we really, really be focusing, focusing on local and seasonal? So, you know, in our winter, making sure we're having the carrots and the potatoes and having that as the bulk of the meal. Or does it not matter as much to have your bananas and avocados, for example, because your net impact is so significantly lower? I mean, seasonal is good. Yeah. And I think that's really important. Um, Things like avocados are probably a bit overblown in the media. And I think they're actually relatively low impact. That's um, good to hear because guacamole is my favourite like food. <laughs> is it something like six percent of carbon emissions are created from um, food travel? Is that right? That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So food miles. Yeah, six percent of foods greenhouse gas emissions are generated by transport. It can be a lot lower for some products, but it can be quite high for some products. So what, what you really want to avoid is those is those very soft fruits that are transported very long distances. So, for example, uh, you know raspberries from Peru. They're going to be quite high impact. They're still, if you're having them in moderation, it's like anything. It's probably not going to be that. So a raspberry, say from Peru, which has the, which is on the bad end of the scale in because terms it's come of, on a plane. Yeah, because it's come on a plane and it has high greenhouse gas emissions uh, compared to, say, meat that's grown and uh, a mile down the road. How do they compare? Because obviously first of all on just a greenhouse gas emission perspective but then also throughout the whole of the rest of the chain that we're looking at yeah so raspberries from peru are a soft fruit transported by air to the uk could have the same emissions as something like pork so they can actually be quite high impact but so but that's just in greenhouse gas emissions so food miles are just a greenhouse gas emission issue you're not talking about land use you're not talking about water use uh, and the pollution of terrestrial and aquatic ecosystems. So it's just a it's a single indicator issue, but the food miles have definitely been blown up a bit in the media. And they don't, see, they that's, don't... that's what I was going to say. It feels like we've picked on a few topics 
that make it more comfortable for us potentially mm. as consumers to point our finger at the guacamole or something like that because it's I just choose guacamole because I love it so I want to defend <laughs> well, it but um, <laughs> and, and, and avocados will come by boat which is very low emission that is brilliant I'm very happy about that but um What's interesting to me is I feel like, again, looking at that kind of whether we're having the right conversation, it feels whenever I say something about vegan diet to someone, literally the first thing they come back at me at is the avocado or something like that and the, the food miles involved in that. And it, is it would it be right to say that potentially that isn't necessarily looking at the problem not necessarily in the wrong way or the right way, but it's not it's looking, looking at, at the whole picture. in a singular picture. way rather yeah. than as a multidimensional way. Yeah, so there, you know, there are all sorts of things we can do to change and make our lifestyles and make what we eat and at lower impact, as you were saying, seasonal, you know, avoiding things that have been transported for a very long way. But they all ignore the elephant in the room, yeah. <laughs> to say, and that is, that, that is meat and animal products. And fish. And farmed fish and fish from the oceans. Fish from the oceans has a, is the real problems, environmental problems, there are to do with the over-exploitation of fish stocks. And some fish are virtually completely depleted. But they, so, can, but they can come back. I mean, I think it was... If we cod, stop. Yeah, I think if, if we, we stop. stop. So all we, we just manage it perhaps. I think cod fishing in the uh, North Sea, they got back to, down to levels, I think it was about 15 years ago, where there were kind of no cod. And then over the last 15 years, they've been managed. They're now back to completely sustainable levels. So. But that's because we've been farming the cod, no? And what we're learning is that farming the fish is not a good thing for the environment so yes if we stop eating at full stop but moving from one to the other yeah. isn't necessarily dealing with the wider issue outside of the sole po cod population of our environment as e a whole exactly so when you just look at it on fish stocks in the north sea it looks like you fixed the issue but you but didn't then, exactly. you just moved the problem elsewhere yeah, exactly. but the positive as far as we're understanding from you today is we can fix the issue but we have to make the decision now in ourselves, in our communities, with our friends and family, that we are going to change our diets. Yeah, there are two. There are two things that I think we need to do. Firstly, we need to globally reduce our consumption of animal products. That is such a key driver. And is it of the just food animal products in food, or is it animal products in fashion? In yeah, is, is leather and things like that involved in that? Well, yeah, they all have. They all. It's all part of the same but system. Is, is food a bigger contributor than than, than the fashion industry? Yeah, say is? food is a bigger contributor than fashion by a long by a long way. For me, there are two things that we need to do. Firstly, globally, worldwide, we need to significantly reduce our consumption of animal products. And secondly, to go to all the points and the discussions and we've been having here, we need labels. We need environmental information on our food products. So instead of having wild debates in the media or people not knowing it just says it there you've got the facts when you're in the shops that's what the impact is but it can't just be um uh greenhouse gas emissions right it needs to be looking at all five factors you mentioned because otherwise again we're getting a skewed picture on things that, exactly and how far away do you think we are from having that labeling i hope it's within five years possibly around there that's my hope and we're doing research on that at the moment here in oxford and there are a lot of companies out there the eu's done a big project on labeling um and there are a lot of companies out there that are actually really engaged with this and i see it as a way to not just put information on products but have a positive effect on the whole food system where you create information i.e farmers know what their impacts are and they can change it yes and you've seen this with energy labeling we put energy labels on things like fridges and freezers uh, in 1992. 
and the the energy efficiency of all those appliances has radically changed. We don't even need labels anymore because most things are ranked A++ and A++. So it's just been a huge transformation and it works. Yeah, It works on the consumer end, it works on the producer end and we, we need it in food. However, you know, that's what our, our research has been trying to really say that we didn't really have the scientific information. Now we're getting there. So for someone who eats you know what you someone might consider a normal diet they have meat and a couple of veg in the evening and maybe a ham sandwich for lunch and um what can they do if they can't go cold turkey vegan overnight but they want to start making positive changes what is a practice that you think people could try and do each week that would really start to move the needle um and improve these issues that we're facing? Well, firstly, cut out the beef. That's going to have a really big impact. So, so just... If you cold can, turkey so cold turkey, beef. Cold turkey on beef. Cold beef. Change, change, yeah. Cold beef. Change, change <laughs> it with something else. Secondly, try different products. And, you know, there are 20, 30 different types of plant milk out there. Try them. And that's going to be Which important. is the best one? I know other readers will ask, which is the best one for the environment? The lowest impact probably somewhere between soy and oats oat milk nice oat froth is very well as anyone's listening <laughs> is worried about their latte oat really does well yeah so they're, they're, pro- again, they're, they're probably I some think, of the low, I, out, I, out I, of the ones we looked at in okay. our database so you, there are new he- new oats like hemp and stuff they're okay. exciting they may but of the commonplace ones the commonplace ones soy, soy and oat are really but it sounds really like I mean even the worst plant milk how does it compare to a dairy milk yeah, so we looked at soy. Even the worst soy milk uses less land, creates fewer emissions than the best, the least impactful cow's milk. So, change, you know, try some different milks. And then, you know, it's a gradual transition. You've just got to have some, you know, some bit of discipline. Yeah. And realize, get and realize, it's, and realize it's only really a small <laughs> taste difference. It's just and yeah. the, the, the impacts of your choice. But it has so to be big. positive. And this is what, you know, a delicious yellow, what our company mission is to try and make vegetables cool and people are only going to do it if it tastes great it's aspirational it sounds as delicious and as fun as eating a big piece of steak that's you know has been the thing that you go out to eat and uh and celebrate with and so it's only going to happen if it's really really delicious and And that is our task every single day we've got to change the preconception so that when you say vegan food someone thinks yum great that you guys as you know, people in the food space are trying to make the taste of vegetable proteins better, yeah. and that's part of it. But consumers have also become a little, have, have got to change their demands and their expectations. Totally. And then we reach that uh, I happy don't know, place, happy, <laughs> happy zone where things taste better. Consumers' expectations have changed a, a bit, and the world's a happier place. But, but taste buds just change. Amazing. I started eating a lot less meat actually before I uh, met Ella, and. It's amazing how your taste buds just change. You just lose the craving that you used to have. And it only takes, if you cut out red meat, I found this, if you cut out red meat for a month or so, you just completely and utterly lose the craving. And it actually then becomes something that you just don't really want to eat. Something you that's tried kind it of, again and then you were like, Ooh. yeah, so you don't, just don't really want to eat something that's kind of bloody and fatty. You're just like, oh, no, I don't really want that. And it's amazing how once you make that change, you just you do not miss it. And this comes from someone who I used to really enjoy eating red meat. And so it really does. I, you know, I hope I'm living proof of that. 
Yeah, well, in China, you get the most delicious fresh soy milk that's hot in the morning. And uh, oh, really? it really it doesn't taste anything like the soy milk you get in the UK. And they've tried to then introduce dairy milk into China. And the Chinese consumers are actually like, you know, what we've got is actually really good. Yeah, so it's great to have it the other way around. Well, honestly, we can't thank you enough for imparting so much wisdom. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it's the biggest pleasure in the world, honestly. Um, and also, so cool to come to Oxford University. Yeah, well. yes. feeling very yeah. clever. <laughs> um, we ask every guest at the end of each episode um, what their kind of one practice they live by every day that helps them create a kind of healthier, happier life and just for context, for some people that's meditation, for other people that's a daily walk, for other people it's a kind of saying or just something they've introduced in their life that makes them happy. I keep a diary and I, and I log what I said I was going to do. Nice. <laughs> how I achieved it and if I didn't. And I also just log general thoughts. I think a diary. And that's how Delicious Yellow started was just by basically creating a journal, right? And you just wanted something that would make sure that you were tracking what you were doing every day, keeping yourself committed and look where it's led. Yeah, totally. And I, I kept a diary a long time and I always found it a really powerful tool as well. I love you know, I love talking, but talking to yourself is particularly impactful. <laughs> and thank you. Can't thank, thank you so you much. No problem. It's been a huge pleasure speaking to you. Thank you Thanks so, so much. much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Um, a lot of food for thought there. And please do come back next Tuesday. And if you liked it, please do rate, review it. And please do share this episode with your friends because we think it's a very important topic. Thanks, guys. 